Right. Good morning, everybody. So uh, this is our eighth week now in our series on the book of Ephesians, and we're going to be picking up right where we left off last week, which is Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17. And if you were here last week, hopefully you remember that in the second half of the book, Paul starts to shift from talking about who we are in Christ to what that means for how we're supposed to live. So there's this shift from talking about being to talking about doing. And uh, last week, Paul emphasized two things about how we are supposed to live. And specifically, the way he put it is how we are supposed to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. So what does it look like when we live lives that are worthy of the calling that God has given to us? Uh, The first thing he emphasized is that when we're doing that, we're working to be unified with other Christians. And he talked about how that's not easy. He assumes it's not easy because he says, make every effort to keep the spirit of unity. So this is one of the things we work towards when we're living lives worthy of our calling. And then secondly, we each become ministers. Now, That word minister, it conjures up images of, you know, a pastor or a missionary or maybe somebody preaching on the street street corner or something like that. But what minister means is to be a servant. And what Paul said is that each one of us has been equipped by the Spirit of God with certain gifts, certain abilities, certain circumstances in our lives, even our personalities are all part of the tools that he has given us in order to serve, serve God, and serve people in some way. And so part of living this life that we're called to is recognizing the ways that we have been equipped to serve and then actually living into that, living out of that. Now, in this passage, Paul is going to continue with this theme of how do we live out the calling that we have received. And he's got a lot more to say. So I'm calling this message, Living the Calling, Part 2. So let's not waste any time. Uh, Let's get into it, because he's got a lot to say. So uh, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this summer morning. Uh, We thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together and to worship. Uh, We thank you for the beautiful music we heard this morning and the team that, that played it. And, um, Lord, we just ask that you would help us to set our attention on you, that your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, and that you would help us to uh, be transformed by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they're full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right, there's a lot to cover here. So Paul starts with some really strong words. I tell you this and insist on it that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. I insist, right? Not I suggest or I advise. I insist, and the word that that comes from in the Greek, it basically means something like, I am speaking with the authority of God right now. I insist you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, Paul probably felt a need to clarify this because a lot of the first half of the book was about how God is creating a family of both Jews and Gentiles, right? The Gentiles have been welcomed into the family of God. Um, and what he's talked about is how God is creating this new family that is, has an identity that's not based primarily on ancestry or nationality or even on obedience to the Mosaic law, but an, a family that is united around faith in Jesus and the experience of the Holy Spirit, right? So Gentiles did not have to be ethnically Jewish to be welcomed into the family. They didn't have to go do sacrifices at the temple. The men didn't have to be circumcised. They didn't have to follow the, the food laws. None of that. And so you can imagine that maybe the Gentiles thought, well, we can just do whatever we want and still be part of this family. We, can, we, we have God's endorsement to just keep living exactly the way that we have. But Paul says, mm, no, 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 that's, that's, not, that's not quite right. This new family that you've been invited into, it does still have some house rules. And they're important. Now, when Paul says, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, we should keep in mind who he was thinking of. He was thinking of the Roman Empire and what was normal for people in the, normal, in the uh, Roman Empire. And what he says was normal for them was for them to give themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and be full of greed. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you look up the word that's translated as sensuality here in the Greek, 
Uh, the dictionary says unbridled lust, excess, shamelessness, and disrespectfulness. And so what Paul is saying here is that what was normal in the culture of the Roman Empire was this sort of shameless self-indulgence. You just kind of let your desires rule. And when you think of what Paul is describing here, it's probably good to think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Think of the son in that story, right? What, what did he do? He said to his father, I want the inheritance now, which is a profoundly disrespectful act because his father's not dead yet, right? You're not supposed to get that till your father dies. And then what does he do? He, he goes out and he, it says that he spent all the money on wild living. His brother says that he spent it on prostitutes. And we're probably also supposed to imagine that he went out and, you know, burned it all on, on drinking and maybe uh, excessive food and that sort of thing. And in no time at all, all that money was gone, right? So he gave himself over to sensuality, right? All of those words there, unbridled lust, excess, shamelessness, disrespectfulness, that is what the prodigal son did. And Paul's saying the culture of the Roman Empire, what's normal for the Gentiles is a lot like that. And keep in mind, this was a culture where for entertainment, they would go to gladiator games, right? <laughs> where people literally died in front of them, and this was for fun to watch this. Uh, this was a culture where prostitution was just considered normal. It was a, a culture where it was normal for people to have slaves and use them for sex. It was just normal. Uh, it, was, it was a culture where it was considered acceptable for uh, uh, boys to be molested by older men as part of an entry into adulthood. And so Paul says, you know, it doesn't matter what's acceptable in your culture. This new humanity that you're being invited into patterns itself after Christ. And that means we don't live in selfish indulgence. And in order to do that, Paul says that the Ephesians are going to need to put off their old self and put on the new self. So the old self is corrupted by deceitful desires and the new self is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I want us to notice that phrase, deceitful desires. Deceitful desires. Not all desires are bad, but some desires are deceitful. All desires say to us, if you satisfy me, you'll be better off. Some desires are like that. <laughs> but some desires are deceitful in that they tell us, you'll be better off if you satisfy me, but if we satisfy them, we're not better off. Right? We become more desensitized or addicted or we're left feeling empty. And part of the Christian life involves discerning what kind of desires are deceitful and what kind of desires are healthy. Turning from the deceitful ones and turning towards the healthy ones. And Paul says that the way that we do this is by taking off the old self and putting on the new self. Do you realize, if you are a follower of Jesus, that you have an old self and a new self? In our culture, 
one of the values of, of the American culture is being your authentic self, right? And um, I don't think that that value is entirely wrong. I think there's a lot that's good about it, depending on how we're understanding those two words, authentic self, right? If we think of our authentic self as who God has created us to be, then great. But if we think of our authentic self as just whatever I desire strongly, well, that's problematic for us as Christians, right? Because we know that there's an old self that has deceitful desires, and there's a new self. And the old self, is, we're supposed to take off the old self. The old self is authentic. It's really us, right? <laughs> we can be authentically impatient and, and uh, bitter and lustful, right? We, we can be very honest about all of that, authentically. But we're still called to take it off and put on the new self. Now, this language that Paul uses of taking off and putting on, it's the same language that would be used for getting dressed and undressed. A, he's using a metaphor of clothing. And one of the things that I like about that metaphor is that theologians would describe this as it shows a synergistic relationship. So we don't do all of it, but we still have a responsibility. Right? God gives us the new clothes. We don't create the new clothes. We don't even buy the new clothes. We're given this new set of clothes, the new self. But we still have a responsibility to put it on. Right? It's like it's in the closet. You've got to get it out of the closet. You've got to take it off the hanger, and you have to actually choose to put it on. So what does it look like when we do that? Well, Paul's going to tell us some specific things, what it looks like. So, let's, let's look at them. Verse 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. It's interesting to me that the first moral issue Paul talks about, right after talking about people being given over to sensuality and being hardened in their hearts and indulging in every kind of impurity, is what? Lying. One of the first signs that we have become spiritually insensitive is that we stop caring about truth. And we just say whatever is convenient for us in the moment. As Christians, we have a responsibility to speak the truth in as far as we know it and to not speak lies. And I think we really need to Keep that in the forefront of our minds these days because right now we have the capacity to spread lies and misinformation more than at any point in history because all we need to do is hit share, retweet, right? I read a report in the MIT Technology Review recently which said that in October 2019, about 140 American Facebook users were exposed to propaganda from Eastern European troll farms. So 140 million, you do the math, that's like 44% of the country. That's a huge number. Now, 
You might be wondering, well, what's a troll farm? Well, boy, doesn't that just conjure certain images in your head, right? Um, a troll farm is a, is a group that creates content deliberately designed to mislead or to sow division and hatred uh, in, in a region. And one of these groups that these troll farms target, among many, obviously if they've reached 140 million Americans, they're going for a lot of groups, but one of the groups that they do target are Christians. In fact, the report said that 19 out of the 20 most viewed sites calling themselves Christian on Facebook were actually troll farms. Now, just to clarify, that doesn't mean that Christians were deliberately seeking out these groups or like liking the pages, but it means that the, the logarithm shared content from those sites to 140 million people. So, if we are committed to truth, if we care about peace, then we got to be very careful about where, what we're clicking share on. And just as a general rule of thumb, if what's being shared is just like one of those squares with a pale colored background and just some text on the top that's clearly designed to make you inflamed and feel hatred towards somebody, probably from a troll farm. And there are people on the uh, you know, other side of the world trying to sow division who know which buttons to push among Christians and they create that content. Got to be careful. The next topic that Paul turns to is anger. Verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. And then he continues that same theme in verse 31 with, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Now, I think we need to be careful about what Paul is, is saying here about this topic of anger. Because, you know, somebody might look at this and say, well, all angry anger is wrong. If you're ang angry about anything, then you're, you're sinning. But it doesn't seem like that can be right because Jesus was angry sometimes and Paul seems to express anger in some of his letters. And, I mean, it just seems wrong not to get angry about things like abuse and and injustice, right? I mean, I get angry when I think about those troll farms trying to mislead people, right? So there is such a thing as what we might call righteous anger. Jesus had that kind of anger when he flipped the tables in the temple. He was mad because uh, the money lenders were making it hard for people to come and worship God. That was righteous anger. But a lot of our anger, probably most of our anger, is not like Jesus' anger. It's not righteous. A lot of the time it is a byproduct of selfish pride and jealousy and envy. It's like Cain's anger. You guys know the story of Cain and Abel from the very beginning of the Bible, one of the first stories. Um, it's a story about anger. Two brothers go to present offerings to God. God shows favor to Abel's offering. 
We don't know quite why. We could debate why that was. But whatever the case, Cain is so angry that God shows favor to Abel's offering that he leads Abel out into a field and he murders him. Right? Now that story is at the very beginning of the Bible because it's telling us something about our condition. It's telling us something about what we are capable of in our sinfulness. And what we're capable of in our sinfulness is we're capable of getting angry about things that we really shouldn't be angry about and doing terrible things because of that. And that kind of anger, that jealous, envious, Cain-like anger is something that we need to put off no matter how authentic it feels to wear it. And let's be honest, it always feels authentic to wear it, right? God says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. In other words, it's like a, a hungry lion about to pounce on you and eat you. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And of course, unfortunately, Cain does not rule over it. If we don't master anger, anger masters us. It's part of the whole point of that story. And so we need to always remember those three commands that we looked at last week. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. Make it a mantra. <laughs> now, the kind of anger that Paul probably has in mind here is the kind that arises when a bunch of people, like in a church, are trying to live in community, and then you just have the ordinary conflicts that arise from that, the ordinary wounding of egos that goes on in that kind of environment. And I think that's what Paul has in mind, because, of course, right before this, he says, remember, we're all members of one body. Right? So he's talking about relationships within the church. And his command is this. When you are angry, don't let the sun go down on it. Otherwise, you give the devil a foothold, which is a way of saying you give the devil an opportunity. If you want to you know, visualize it, imagine the, the devil's trying to climb up this cliff to get to you. Whenever you're angry at your brother or sister in Christ, it's like you're giving him a good rock to boost himself up on to get closer to you. So Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, what does that mean? Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It means when you're angry at a brother or sister in Christ, be proactive about changing that. Be proactive about changing that. Now, when you think about it, there's two ways that you can do that. One is to choose to let go of the anger. I know that's not always easy, but a lot of the time it's something that we really are capable of if we try. You know, you remind yourself, oh, I'm supposed to forgive people the same way that Christ forgave me. Oh, I, would want to I should want to show people the same grace that I would want to receive. Oh, this person that I'm angry at is loved by God. You know, if you remind yourself of all those things, Ask the Lord, transform my heart of anger to a heart of love towards this person and just let it go. A lot of the time, you can deal with it that way. 
let go of the anger. But there may be some cases where, you know, that's not really enough. You should do more. And in those cases, the best thing to do is to talk things out with the person that you're angry with. And what Paul is saying is don't put that off for a long time. Because the vast majority of the time, if you actually just sit down with the person that you have a conflict with, you have an honest conversation, most of the time, you're going to come away from it with a lot less anger in your heart. right? Because sitting down with that person, that person becomes humanized to you again. You see the totality of who they are rather than just what upset you. A lot of the time, you find out that they never even intended to hurt you. Or the person will express remorse and feel bad, you know? Usually, when there's an honest conversation, good things happen, and you're released from that anger. But what we don't want to do is just let the anger fester. Now, I do want to add just one exception here. I think it's important to, to clarify this. If the person that you are angry with is dangerous, like if they're physically abusive uh, or sexually abusive or something like that, then you're probably not going to want to sit down and have a conversation with them, right? That's not what I would recommend. In some rare cases, what you need to do to deal with your anger is don't put it off. Go and speak to leadership in the church or in some cases, you may need to contact the police, okay? But even in that case, the best thing to do is just not let the anger fester, but to act and not to put that off, right? To do what is necessary to protect the rest of the community and try to make things right. But of course, most of the time, our conflict with another is not because they are abusive or dangerous. It's simply because they haven't been consistently being humble, gentle, and patient, right? And when that happens and you're angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it fester, let it go, or talk it out. And just to clarify, I also don't think that Paul is giving us this, like, hard and fast rule where it's like, hey, if you see the sun going down, you better deal with it right away, right? I think this is a figure of speech that's basically saying, hey, don't put it off. Don't let it fester. I mean, in some occasions, you may get angry and you need just a little bit of time to sleep on it before you decide, am I going to be able to just let go of this or do I need to talk it out with the person? And I don't think we need to get really legalistic about, oh no, the sun is going down, so you've got to deal with it right away. It is, it's a figure of speech. That means don't let it fester, okay? All right, so what else does Paul say? What does it look like to live lives worthy of our calling? Next, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Now, I think it's unlikely that in the church at the time there was a bunch of people stealing. You know, they probably didn't have a bunch of people who were like, my profession is robber or pirate, you know. Um, I don't think that's what was going on, but I think what was happening was that there were a lot of people who were freeloading off of a very generous community, 
And that's what Paul means by stealing. In the book of Acts, it describes the early church. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. So the early church took very seriously this responsibility to care for those that had been neglected, forgotten uh, by society. And one of the things that drew so many people into the community and made them experience the grace of God was this generosity. Uh, And because they were such a, they lived so communally, really. And uh, so you can imagine that in that kind of environment, there might be some people that started to think, well, you know, I could just kind of take it easy and just let everybody, you know, live off of the generosity of everybody else. And Paul says, hey, no, you've got to stop stealing and you've got to work. Do something useful with your hands so that you will have something to share with those in need. I like that the way he ends it there is, Hey, you know, you should work because then you'll have an opportunity to actually have the joy of giving, right? Of contributing. It's a good thing. Work is a good thing. And if we are capable of working, we should. Now, of course, there are some uh, unique circumstances where our work may be limited. We may not be able to be employed. But all of us need some kind of... uh, opportunity to contribute in order to uh, live out our calling. You know, Paul specifically encourages them to do something useful with their hands, which was significant because in the Roman Empire, in general, manual labor was looked down upon. Manual labor was like things, the sort of thing the lower classes did, right? But Paul is saying, no, there's a dignity and working with your hands. There's something good about that. Manual labor is good. I mean, that's the kind of work that was given to Adam and Eve before the fall, right? It's good. So, don't be too lazy to work. Don't be too proud to work. If you can work, then do it. That is part of living a life worthy of your calling. So, quick review. Living lives worthy of our calling, it means putting off lies, putting on truth, putting off anger, and putting on kindness, and putting off laziness, and putting on work. And just to finish up, I think I've gone a little bit long, I apologize for that. I want us to notice that Paul says two things about why we should do all this. And he doesn't say, do this all to earn God's love, right? Uh, He says, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Christ has already loved you, so you should imitate that love. That's the way we're supposed to see this. But the second thing that I want us to notice is verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to think of our actions as having this capacity to grieve God. To bring sadness to God's heart. When we spread lies, we grieve God. 
When we hold on to anger against people that God loves, we grieve God, right? When we take advantage of others' generosity, we grieve God. Anything we do that causes harm in the body of Christ causes grief to God. You know, I think many of us are quick to imagine God getting angry, right? But we might be less likely to imagine him being sad about our choices, grieving over them. And Paul wants us to do that, you know, to think of God's grief before holding on to bitterness and before spreading gossip. You know, sometimes the thing that really stops someone in their... um, in their anger, is realizing that they're causing someone pain. And Paul is saying, consider the pain we cause to the heart of God and don't cause him that grief. Choose to bring joy to the heart of God. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we can talk about how we're supposed to live this way, but actually doing it is, uh, is never easy when the real challenges to our ego and our pride come, um, when the real disappointments come, when the sinfulness of others is revealed. But Lord, I pray that you would fill us uh, with your, your humility and gentleness and patience. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us perseverance and courage to live lives worthy of the calling that we have received. Help us to put off anger. Help us to put off laziness. Uh, Help us to become our truly authentic selves, Lord, the selves uh, that you have made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.